users are very good at what they do. They're very skilled. Individual counseling has a lot of benefits, but it's something different about that support group, knowing I can come here and be heard. A lot of our clients, they may have been isolated for so long, they don't have anybody else. I think we all have encountered an abuser, whether we know it or not. We use danger assessment, and I often use the power and control will. Whether you're ready to leave or not, whether you leave and go back, we're here. And know that it is very dangerous when clients are ready to leave. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. I will be speaking this time with Nichelle Lynn Hennigan. Nichelle is a licensed professional counselor who started with Laurel House five years ago as a master's level clinical counseling intern. Today, she is a senior counselor. During her time with Laurel House, she has provided counseling services to the women and children in their shelter, and she covered their 24-hour hotline too. Currently, Nichelle works out of three different Laurel House sites and oversees two of those locations. In addition to providing individual counseling, Nichelle also facilitates a weekly support group for survivors of domestic violence. Before coming to Laurel House for over 12 years, Nichelle has been advocating in the crisis work field with survivors. She was also a hotline crisis worker with Women Organized Against Rape, plus a crisis worker with the Lenape Valley Foundation and a counselor with the Center for Family Guidance. Nichelle is a compassionate counselor whose hope is that one day all survivors of abuse will be able to find healing and the tools to cope with the trauma they have endured. Nichelle, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast and thank you for fitting us in. Thanks, Bill. I'm honored and excited to be here. I appreciate the work that you've done and it's important to get this information out. And I'm so sorry about the loss of your daughter. It's really devastating just how domestic violence, you know, rips away loved ones. Yes, thank you very much for that. I I really appreciate you thinking about Kristen. Thank you. Uh, Let me ask you now, before coming to Laurel House, you were a hotline crisis worker with women organized Mm -hmm. against rape. I think about that kind of position, and I can't imagine that level of responsibility. Please tell us about that. So that was really my entrance into this crisis work, but I've always just Mm -hmm. been compassionate about women's issues and working with survivors of some sort. I actually found the role while on a bus. I saw the sign uh, for uh, the survivors to call in, but I said, you know what, let me get in contact with them to see if they have any opportunities. And so uh, that work, it was really, really important to me. That is another underserved population, women who have been raped along with domestic violence survivors. So it, it was a very great experience. That was just meant to be for you to spot a sign and and act on it. I mean, how many times do we see something and say, oh, wow, that must be horrible, but 
I got to get to work or I got a class or, you know, you know, you don't act on it. You did. And then it became your career field. So you worked as a counselor for many years. Mm-hmm. When you're speaking with someone who has been abused these days, where do you start the conversation? So really, I listen to see what their background is. What is it that they're wanting? So many times we can come in with our own ideas of what should happen in their situation. And it's really, really important to hear what they're saying, what they need, and then taking it from there. Usually giving them, maybe it would be the power and control will to take a look at to see if that resonates with them. Maybe it's a book that we're offering. But oftentimes, I like to give them some sort of tangible resource that they can look and read and not me just giving them advice about what to do. That's very smart. And I've heard that from some other counselors that as much as you might think, oh, here's what you need to do. Now, I figured out I figured out what you need and here's what you need to do. But so often you kind of want to offer some things, but you do realize they've got to take that walk for themselves. So if you give them that booklet or that book or whatever that is, you have to you have to give them space and time absolutely, so that they can figure it out and self-guide to some point. Absolutely. Because I've listened to some of your podcasts and they're awesome, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. So many times we may be the family or friend of this loved one. We want to swoop up. We want to protect them. We want to save them. But what we don't think about, or maybe we don't even realize is if we were able to do that, right? And we got them away from that abuser. Guess what? They didn't learn like the red flags to look out for next time. They didn't learn how to set firm boundaries and stick with it. So it's very likely they'll end up with another abuser. And that's what happens oftentimes. I'm glad you mentioned that. That is something I don't think in any of the podcasts so far have been talked about. It seems like you're right, that that people who wind up with abusers have it happen multiple times. Yes. Yes. They just wander right into a similar situation and they're right in the rough spot again and they've got to then figure a way to get free from it. Yes. That's really true. It's it's amazing. And these aren't I mean these are smart people. They're smart, but they're not smart about about abuse. Well, this is what I tell my clients. These abusers are very good at what they do. They're very skilled. So they present differently. So if I'm in a relationship with someone who's been very physically abusive, and then I get to someone who's abusive, but it's presented in just a very nice way, you know, I want to take care of you. You don't have to work. I want you to be close to me, maybe not hang out with friends so much. That to me, he's not hitting me. He's not as bad as the last guy. This guy is awesome. So they present differently. So I think that's important to know and share with clients. And that's why it can be easy for them to get back in. Right. And and if they're paying attention and if the woman's spoken about the last relationship, then that guy knows. Absolutely. Well, I can't be that guy, but I can be me the way I am. And and I'll figure out some other way to to get into your life and, and make it what it is. Some of the counseling that you do, I understand, is individual. Correct. And then sometimes you work with support groups. When is it better that they are counseled individually, maybe versus joining a support group, let's say? So many of our clients enter in usually through individual. But at a certain time, I do encourage clients to at least try the group. 
because what they get with the group is a specialized type of support, I say. The women or uh, other clients that are in this group are either at the beginning, middle, or end of their healing process. So in that way, they're able to give support, ideas, and different options to the survivors that maybe they've never heard. You know, it's a group where they really truly bond. And so individual counseling has a lot of benefits, but it's something different about that support group, knowing I can come here and be heard, that I don't have to really explain when I say this, these people get it already. And it's just such a great union. A lot of our clients that participate, you know, they truly value and they usually stick in with it past the, you know, relationship. And so I I think it's very valuable. And so I always offer it. But many times clients may not, it may be intimidating initially, but I always offer when they come in, they can share as much or as little as they want. So there's no expectation, Mm -hmm. you know, of what you have to share. Yes. Being self-directed, that's really good. Yeah. And as you know, even much better than I, that these are people who feel like they don't have a lot of control over their lives. So the fact that they can they can say as much or as little, or they can go individually, or they can go into a group, which might might be better sometimes for them to go into a group and hear other people's stories and see some of the similarities, and maybe even seek out some of the other people in the group and ask them questions. Absolutely. Because a lot of our clients, they may have been isolated for so long, they don't have anybody else. That's another great benefit of being in group that's different from individual. And so many times I may suggest that clients do individual along with the group. Oh, that's good. Very good. Smart. And sometimes the client, they may have counseling somewhere else, individual counseling somewhere else, and then just are attending our group. For the most part, clients are individual and then we refer them if they're you know willing and if they want to group as well. Can you tell us some of your remarkable success stories? I mean, just things that come to mind that you say, you know, someone presented a certain way and then their path to some healing and success. When I think about success, it may not be what maybe the public may think of success when we talk about DV. I say this because we have to understand that any of the small steps that clients take to get out of this abuse to me is is significant. And so I don't like to overlook that. Some of the stories that come to mind would be one client we actually had to meet with at the library. His abuser was so controlling. She would calculate his mileage. So he was only allowed to go certain places. So this places. is a man who's being abused uh, in this instance. This is a man who's being abused. you don't get to hear abused. that many of those yes. stories. So that's good. I'm glad you're telling us this. Go ahead. And eventually we were able to work with him and he and his son were able to get away from this abuser uh, after a physical altercation and police were involved. So you met with him at the library? At the library. That was that was the only place that he was safe to go outside of work. How about that? Calculated his mileage. That's good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Wow. Another one that I can think of, uh, I have, I met with a person before who put their abuser out and the abuser had to go to a shelter. And so usually abusers are able to manipulate guilt trip to get back in, but 
this client was very steadfast. She held her boundaries and he had to be in the shelter. It, it was a homeless shelter. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh. Yes. I got you now. Wow. Okay. There's a lot yep. to process there. Wow. Do you, do you have any idea where that relationship went from there or was that? It ended. It so ended. she was like, you're out it and ended. you're out of my life. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But you're right. You know, the small successes, I mean, it's not going from um, a horrible situation to a, a big trophy at the end and everything's just wonderful and the music plays. The small successes are really yeah. big, especially for somebody who has really been kind of stuck in a cave with somebody who's treating them horribly. I mean, just even having yeah. friends again, that's a big move. Oh, absolutely. We hear from a lot of clients. They have to, you know, try to reconnect if the family and friends are willing um, that's tough. because of, that's every, you tough. know, everything that's, that's gone through and not all family and friends get what the dynamics are. So they may not be willing to reconnect. So how much experience would you say you've had with the actual abusers? I mean, who are these abusers and, and how do you describe them for our audience? So I don't have a lot of experience with the abusers of my clients per se. Right. But I think we all have encountered an abuser, whether we know it or not. And so what I would say is think of the most charismatic person you know. Think of somebody that's really loving and fun and you enjoy being around them. You always have a great time. Think about whoever that is. And that person is not an abuser. That's not what I'm saying. But that persona, that is an abuser. I think too many times we're thinking of this person who may be just very nasty, mean, aggressive. You would never want to be around them. We think that's the abuser, and it's not. It is the person that you love hanging out with at work or maybe even at church. These are well-loved people. These are people that have professionally, they may be doing very well. So those are the abusers. And that is how, you know, a lot of survivors get into abusive relationships, not because these guys come with a t-shirt saying, hey, I'm abusive, but because they're so inviting. You're right. At the very beginning of the relationship, it's kind of the storybook thing and it's really wonderful. And this person seems so generous and has the right thing to say and everything's yes. just great. And oftentimes you'll hear from people saying, you know, if this person treated me in the beginning the way this person treated me five, six months later, I never would have, there wouldn't, there would not have been a second date or a second moment with Absolutely. that person. Absolutely. If someone were in an ongoing abusive relationship and you were the very first person to speak with that person, like they come to you first and say, look, I, I've got this really big problem. What points would you want to get out to them right away? Once again, I would really listen to hear what they're looking for because not all survivors are looking to get away from the abuser right away. So listening to what they're looking for, the most powerful tool in my experience is a tangible resource. So we use danger assessments and I often use the power and control wheel. When they see oh, and read it for themselves, there's nothing I could really tell this person, meaning them one time, that would really get them to move right then and there. But giving them that foundation, the information that they're in a dangerous situation, that can help to build upon and give them options. Let them know you can leave. 
a lot of times clients think, especially coming with us, I'm not ready to leave yet. So I, I'm not appropriate for counseling. And that's not true. We're here for you, whether you're ready to leave or not, whether you leave and go back, we're here. And so I think that's important for them to know. There's somebody here to listen and be with you, whether you stay or whether you go. That's a very good point. And and I understand from a lot of people, some of your counselors there, even uh, people in law enforcement, that oftentimes a woman might leave that situation seven or eight times or so and that before finally breaking. I mean, on average, it's supposed to be like seven yes, or eight times. Yes, right? on average, five to seven. But that that's at the very least. So understanding mm-hmm. those numbers, I think it's important for us to be compassionate, know there are many factors and reasons as to why that is, and know that it is very dangerous when clients are ready to leave. When they get to that point, the abuser may be willing to risk it all. So it gets very dangerous. So it's important to have a safety plan when they're ready to do that. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts. Available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. Now, at Laurel House, will your group sit with them and work out some kind of a safety plan? And what, what might that look like? I mean, what are some of the factors Absolutely. That you can share? So we as counselors work with them, but we also have our DART team, so our domestic abuse response team, and those ladies work to help with some of, explain to our survivors what are some of their options, but they too do the safety planning. So that may mean picking up all your documents and putting it in your car or another safe place. That may mean when you're parking your car, face it out. So as soon as you're, if you had to leave in a hurry, you don't have to back up. That may mean talking to neighbors and your children about like you would do a fire safety plan. If X, Y, and Z happens, you go here, you call this person, you do this. So sorting out if this happens, where do I go? Who do I call? What do I do? Wow, that's great. I'm I'm really glad you walked us through all of that. So with the intent of helping someone who is being abused, it might be a friend trying to help a friend. It it might be a family member, might be a mom helping her daughter who's who's in an unhealthy relationship. Tell us some of the things that people might want to do that you know just are proven not to help. So number one, do not bad talk the abuser. I know that you may not like them. And even at the time, if the person is venting to you about them, they do not want to hear that because it makes them feel like you're not a safe person to talk to, that they can't confide in you. Because if they do decide to go back, then they have to think about what you may say, what you may do. 
I think it's also important, like we talked about before, not to intervene in a way that they don't want you to. So going to tell the person off or trying to get involved physically with that person, it can be dangerous and the abuser may try to retaliate against the survivor. So really just being there to listen because uh, that's what they need. Yes. And it, it would be so tempting to just tee off on on someone who's Absolutely. abusing someone you care about. I mean, I, I can preview that in my own head and it would be all I could do to try to stay calm, just kind of work with it, focus on the goal. It's not going to get fixed today, probably. It'll take time. But the great thing about Laurel House and your counselors and other counselors I've talked with is they've seen this so many times. They've seen people run the play the wrong way and run the play the right way. And they know what just time and time again works and what doesn't work. I'm glad you're telling us these things. But I know that if someone came to me and yeah. and walked through what was going on, I would want that whole situation fixed right now. It would be like, look, you're not going back. I'll go talk with this person who's doing this. This is wrong. Absolutely. And it'd be just so hard. Yes. Yes. I I get it. Yeah. It's such a visceral reaction. You're, I mean, you're the parent. You want to protect, right. you know, right. your child. You want to protect your loved one. Absolutely. I get it. So what is counseling like for survivors or their family members? It's important. An important topic is counseling for their family members and survivors. A lot of the questions you asked thus far, we've talked about how the family or friends can help survivors. One way is for the family member or a friend to get counseling themselves, especially with what we just said. It can be tough to kind of hold back those feelings and your thoughts about the abuser. So it's important for them to get the counseling because there they can vent how they truly feel, the frustration, but they also get resources about how they're able to help this person or know if I'm not the person to help them, right? So maybe I'm just the person that will say, hey, I read this, here, here you go. But they're not able to really control themselves to not bad talk or, you know, not to get involved. So they may have to take a step back. So I think that's important for them to talk about and process. And for the survivor themselves, it really is just about them having a safe place, a safe space to talk which a lot of times they do not have because they're isolated and they only have the abuser, but also a place to learn about themselves. So much of their life is about what they have to do for the abuser, how they have to, how they have to stay safe. And I was talking to a colleague earlier this week and she brought up a good point. Many of our uh, clients are living double lives and they're really good at it. And so they're having to present, you know, one way for friends and family while in the background, they're they're living in hell. So I think that is important for us to know and share today too. Yeah, I mean, I guess they would have to do that. You know, if they they go work a job, they have to magically transform at the threshold and show up and function and give it eight hours or whatever they have to do, or work a couple shifts or whatever they're doing, and then then they come home and now they're on the receiving end of of the behavior. There's a quote of yours, which is that you hope that one day all survivors of abuse will be able to find healing and the tools to cope with trauma that they have endured. When you think of, when you say, and the tools to cope, what tools come to mind? 
first and foremost is to get a hold of a counselor, one who is trauma-informed, and one who is well-versed in domestic violence. Unfortunately, not all therapists know a lot about DV. Sometimes clients, before they get to us, have been told to go to couples counseling, go to marital counseling. Oh, sure they do. And so... You know, that is not going to help when we're talking about an abuser. So definitely that's the first tool. And then podcasts like this, Bill, books like yours. We also refer clients to books, Should I Stay or Should I Go by mm-hmm. Lundy Bancroft. Yeah, I see um, that. saw that. Why does he do that? You know, mm-hmm. and because of the great internet, they can really go online and just type in abuse book. Many abusers, they may be narcissists. So there are a lot of new podcasts out talking about that. So they can really find the nearest book, podcast, but definitely a domestic violence agency mm-hmm. to help them. And, and that will, will get them on their way. Now, when you think of a narcissist, what would be your off the top of your head definition? Once again, I I think of somebody who's smooth and charismatic, someone who, yes, the inner workings is really someone who is all about self because they really don't have a positive view on themselves, but also someone who gaslights a lot, Mm -hmm. right? Makes Mm -hmm. you doubt yourself. You're always confused. Did this really happen this way? He, you know, maybe he or she is right when they say this. Someone who does not give you space to think about, should I go this way or not? They're really forcing their themselves upon you. Narcissists tend to really want to make their world perfect. And sometimes yes. to make their world perfect, they have to prove to you that their, that their world is perfect and yours is not. And if anything, then they're the strong party and that makes them attractive again. Yes. Because people who feel like they're out of control seek people who feel like they're in control. Absolutely. So you can sort of see this strange enabling behavior going back and forth. You hit the nail on the head, Bill. And for a lot of clients, when they first are coming in, what it looks like on their view is, you know, well, he has all, he or she has all these good traits. If they would just change this part, then we would, you know, be in a perfect situation. And what I explain to clients often, I said, you know, you're looking at things logically, you're looking at things kind of straightforward. I tell them to take off their glasses and put it on the, put on the lens of the abuser. For the abuser, guess what? All of this that's going on, they don't have a problem with it. The relationship is perfect the way it is right now. Right. And so that can be tough to hear and accept. Yeah, somebody's getting their way all the time. Why would they want anything to change? Exactly. Exactly. You know, even though it has to do with it got that way because of being abusive and having someone else live with it and put up with it and and in many ways, unfortunately, enable it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So most of the time we talk about women as the victims and survivors of abuse. And you did mention someone earlier who was a guy, but But what does it look like when men are survivors of abuse? Men actually go through a lot of the same things that our female survivors do. So what that means is they can be physically abused, definitely emotionally. But because they're a man, the idea is supposed to be that they're strong. They would never go through a situation like that. So it's harder for them to seek help. 
for many, you know, of the abusers, they just sit with it. They don't want to call the police. I've heard many stories when they do call the police that the police often listening more so to the the female abuser side of the story or kind of dismissing it like, hey, well, you go somewhere for a couple of hours and and then it should resolve itself. It's a lot tougher for them to seek the help because nobody believes them. They don't want to admit it. Or people will ask, well, you're a man. How is she abusing you? What is she doing? Yeah, you're 6'1", and she's 5'3", and what are we talking about here? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's got to be very embarrassing, and they've got to think many times before they actually make that phone call or or admit to anybody that they know. It's got to be tough. It's very tough. Absolutely. Is there anything that you think I might have missed or you'd like to add? Anything that I didn't ask you about today or we didn't talk about that you think we should talk about? I love the fact that in your podcast you talk about that this happens to a lot of people, right? It's one in three or one in four, right, that are impacted. So I encourage people because sometimes we look at that number and says, yeah, one in three of those people over there, right? So Mm -hmm. think about three or four women in your life and one out of those have experienced that abuse somewhere, not somewhere over there, one of those people that you know. And so it's important to know that many people are in these relationships and do not know it. What the research indicates is about 36 to 58% of couples that are in counseling right now have experienced an assault by one or both partners in the past. I think that's really important for people to get and know. And so we need to be teaching our children, but also we need to start to model What's a healthy argument? What's a healthy way of discussing, right? Because children are learning from what they see, what they see from us. We need to be the ones to go and seek counseling and make sure that we are doing what we need to so that we can then show and explain to our children what that looks like. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, That was a good catch. Absolutely. You, to model the behavior. Because if they see some horrible behavior, pandemonium, going on in the house and they're thinking, well, that's what married people do, or that's what people who love each other do, I guess. So it becomes their own normal, just as much as they see people who handle it calmly and work their way through it. Also, one thing we don't talk about, there have been some survivors who have come in, they've never seen their parents argue one way or another, positive or negative. So when they are introduced to this abuser and the abuser has all these tactics, and tools that clients don't have anything to compare it to. So they go with, okay, this may be normal because they were never taught, they never saw their parents argue at all. And so some may think that's positive, right? We don't want to argue in front of the children, but we have to show them a way of what does positive, what does it look like to resolve issues in a positive way? We have to show them something. That's very good. I mean, if you really If you grow up and you don't have a lot to work off of, and it's almost like you're experiencing or seeing this happening for the first time, but it's happening to you or around you, then again, maybe you just work off of what this other person's doing. You think, well, I guess that's the way guys are or women are, you know, that's, yes, you know, this must be it. I'm just new to it. So Nichelle, thank you for joining me on this When Dating Hurts podcast. You've dedicated yourself to the domestic violence cause. It's obvious. Ever since you saw that sign that day on that bus, 
And what you've done and you continue to do is simply remarkable. Got to be obvious to you. It's obvious to me that you're improving lives. And I bet that you've probably saved many people as well. I mean, you must know that. It's been my honor to get with you today and have you tell us about your experiences, your experiences and your wisdom that can save lives going forward. And I hope I have the opportunity to get to meet you sometime when I'm at Laurel House. Obviously, the work that you're doing is just so incredibly important. So really, thank you for stopping everything and coming on and speaking with us today and giving us some great insights. Well, thank you, Bill. And the work you're doing is really important and it's needed. And I just really commend you on the vulnerability that you share with us, you know, as you're continuing to educate others and you will be completely justified in just writing your book and focusing on your own healing. So I just really find it admirable that even through your own grief work, you're bringing us along and spreading this information. You're bringing the help and awareness and you can catch a lot of people that agencies like mine don't get to until it may be too late. Well, thank you very much. Like you, I'm doing what I feel like I'm called to do. You know, it just seems like it comes naturally. And one thing that makes what I do so much better is meeting people like you who can share. And I just feel like I'm part of your team and I feel like you're part of my team. And so there is a definite togetherness that I've probably never felt my entire life until my daughter's tragedy years ago. I've met so many people that I really like to share what I've got and, and learn what they've got. So thank you for giving me your time. It's wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bill. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.